Let's turn this morning to Lamentations chapter 4. Just a reminder, we've been working through the five chapters of Lamentations and the five Sundays of Lent. They are basically the funeral hymns or funeral poems that Jeremiah writes in his sorrow and sadness because of the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, For 50 years he preached that this destruction would come and no one paid any attention to him. And now in these five chapters he attempts to make uh, make sense or help the people understand why this has come upon them and to help them also, as we saw last week, be reminded of God's great faithfulness. We look at chapter 4 today. So before I read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, grant us understanding that as we look at your word, we would see exactly what it says, understand exactly what it means, not just for the inhabitants of Jerusalem 2,500 years ago, but for the inhabitants of Huntsville today, the inhabitants of this church today, the inhabitants of these pews and, 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 and us today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Lamentations chapter 4. How dark the gold has become. How the pure gold has changed. The sacred stones are poured out at the corner of every street. The precious sons of Zion weighed against fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen jars. The work of a potter's hand. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. The little ones ask for bread but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those reared in purple embrace ash pits. For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands were turned toward her. Her consecrated ones were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than corals. Their polishing was like lapsus lazuli. Their appearance is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is withered. It has become like wood. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger, for they pine away being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He has kindled a fire in Zion, which has consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world, that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who have shed in the midst the blood of the righteous, they wandered blind in the streets. They were defiled with blood so that no one could touch their garments." Depart, unclean, they cried of themselves. Depart, depart, do not touch. So they fled and wandered. Men among the nations said, They shall not continue to dwell with us. The presence of the Lord has scattered them. He will not continue to regard them. They did not honor the priests. They did not favor the elders. 
Yet our eyes failed. Looking for help was useless. In our watching, we have watched for a nation that could not save. They hunted our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were finished, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the sky. They chased us on the mountains. They waited in ambush for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we had said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Eden, who dwells in the land of Uz. But the cup will come around to you as well. You will become drunk and make yourself naked. The punishment of your iniquity has been completed, O daughter of Zion. He will exile you no longer, but he will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will expose your sins. This is God's inspired word for us today. There's a lot in there. We'll get little bits of it. Make sure that we get an understanding of what's going on. First, I'm going to test your knowledge of obscure trivia, which is so often what I do. Do you remember Reverend Leroy and his wife, Geraldine? Leroy was the pastor of the church, What's Happening Now? And Leroy and Geraldine were the same person. You remember who they were? Flip Wilson? That's right. Well, it's a story that, that he tells and, and, and his, his wife, Geraldine, and one day Geraldine came home with a new dress that she knew Pastor Leroy, her husband, would just hate. And sure enough, Reverend Leroy hit the ceiling when he saw this, what he termed, scandalous frock. What on earth ever possessed you to buy such a thing, he demanded. And you know what Geraldine said? The devil made me do it. <laughs> and just how did the devil make you do that? Pastor Leroy wanted to know. Well, it's not my fault, Geraldine said. I was walking down the street, minding my own business, and when all at once the devil said to me, Oh my, will you look at that fancy dress in the window? It would look good on you. Never mind you in that dress, devil, I said to him. I ain't got nothing to do with that dress. Well, said the devil, it won't hurt just to take a look. No, I guess not said Geraldine. So I went over to the dress shop and I looked in the window and she said, my, that dress is fine. That dress is fine. And the devil whispered in her ear and said, why don't you go in? Have a closer look. You're not going to buy it. Just go in and have a look. So I went inside the shop to have a closer look and that dress was even more fancy inside the store than it was outside. Why don't you try it on, said the devil. Now, Mr. Devil, said Geraldine, you know better than that. My husband would never let me buy a dress like that. And the devil said, can't hurt to try it on. Reverend Leroy, well, he won't even know. He won't even know. So Geraldine said, I tried on the dress, and it was like I was poured into it. It fits so good. You know that dress was made just for you, the devil said. It wouldn't be right to let some other woman have it. So before I knew what I was doing, I walked out of the store with it. Reverend Leroy sat down in his favorite chair with his long sigh, and he said, Why is it that the devil is always making you do what you want to do? Why doesn't he ever do anything for me? Ha! said Geraldine. The devil, he say, if it weren't for him, you wouldn't have a job. The devil made me do it. Right? It's not my fault. The devil 
made me do it. That's a classic example. It's a classic excuse. We've used it since when? Adam and Eve, okay? Adam said, it wasn't my fault. It was that woman you gave me. And Eve said, it wasn't my fault. It was the serpent. The devil made me do it, okay? But Adam, but God had told Adam that he had sinned, and now would have to face the penalty of that sin, that expulsion from the garden, the curse of the ground, death. God told Adam, don't you go there. And what did Adam do? He went there. He went there knowing that God said, if this is what you do, death will come upon you. He pursued folly. He pursued sin. He pursued behaviors and actions that God said, don't do. But yet he went right ahead and did it. Now he had to face the penalty of his sin. And you know what's worse? We have to face it too. Because Adam is our federal head. He's the one that represents us. Because we come from Adam, we are tainted by that sin too. His actions affect us. Now, I have a friend from high school. Now, you'll know, he's not a, he wasn't a very bright friend. You'll understand this. Uh, but I have a friend from high school, and he and another guy were sitting in a car across the street from the courthouse smoking marijuana. Now, I say he wasn't a very bright friend. So here you have a, an officer who's sitting in his office in the courthouse. He looks out the window. He sees two teenage boys in a car smoking something. So he walks out of his office across the street, taps on the window. The, my brother rolls down the window. Smoke comes out of the car. And the officer says, what are you doing? And the guy, you know, a buddy says, it's his drugs. Okay? They aren't mine, they're his. And you know who went to jail for that? Both of them. <laughs> he said, well, it wasn't my fault. They were his. Gee, you knew those were wrong. You knew you could get caught, and there was a penalty if you got caught. But it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. But they went right ahead and did it anyway. See, that's the thing about sin. We know it's wrong. We know there's a penalty associated with it. But what? We go right ahead and do it anyway. It doesn't matter whether the date is March 14th, 2010, or 586 B.C., sin gets punished. Sin gets punished. Now, if the date is 586 B.C., and you're here in Lamentations, and you are the chosen people of God, and he has instructed you very clearly what you have to do to receive the blessings of God, and that is simply to be obedient to what he says. If you're obedient, you'll receive his blessings, but yet you ignore those instructions. You ignore the instructions of the prophet Jeremiah, who for 50 years has been telling you, don't go there. When they go, they are shocked. Shocked that judgment of their sin comes upon them. They are shocked that portions of their population have been slaughtered, that portions are cast off into slavery, and that Jerusalem has been destroyed. The people were shocked. But you know what? They deserved it. They deserved it. They pursued habitually and purposefully. They pursued sin. They ignored the warnings of God. They ignored the warnings of Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah tells them that the years of their sinful indulgence, look at verse 1. If you have, still have the Bible open. Their years of sinful indulgence has so tarnished them as if to what? How dark the gold has become. You have a gold ring on. Look at it. You had this ring for 25 years and, and some change. I've never once polished this ring. Do you know why? 
You never have to polish gold. Now, my trumpet down there. Comes with this rag. You know what this rag is? It's a silver polishing rag because the trumpet's made of silver. If I just leave it there for a while, it'll start to turn this funny shade of bronze and, and get all tarnished. And you have, to, you have to shine it up every now and then. But gold never tarnishes. It never loses its luster. That's why it is so easy to find in shipwrecks. You know, the gold sparkles underwater. Why? Because it never tarnishes. But yet, the people have become so disobedient to God, so consumed with their own desires and their own sinfulness, they have pursued it that he says what? How dark the gold has become. They just sought after sin. They sought after other gods. And judgment comes upon them. The precious people of Jerusalem, once who were so highly valued, are what now? Precious stones, precious sons of Zion, weighed against fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen jars, the work of the potter's hands. In fact, in Jeremiah, he was instructed to go and to buy a very large earthen pot, a clay pot. Go in the middle of town, throw it down, and break it. And say, this is what you have become, and this is what the Lord will do. And he smashed that pot in front of everybody, and what did they do? They didn't want to look at it. They didn't want to listen to it. And he says, you were once fine gold. Now you're nothing more than a shattered piece of clay. A shattered piece of clay. Look at verse 3. 3 through 10 gives us an idea of what is going on in the city at this time and how bad it had become. Verse 3, even jackals offer their breasts. Off of the breast they nursed their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. Job uses this same illustration. Ostriches are known for not really caring much about their offspring. They'll have offspring, but they won't pay much attention to them. And that is what has happened here in Jerusalem. They have offspring, and they don't even care about them. Look at verse 4. The tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. You would think from this passage that there must be, there must be this great uh, thirst throughout the entire city of Jerusalem. That everybody must be clamoring for water. Even the infants don't have water, but that's not true. Years ago, Hezekiah had a tunnel built from inside Jerusalem underneath the city walls to a a buried spring. There was always a flow of water in Jerusalem. There was plenty of water to go around. But yet, Jeremiah says, the tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. How could this be? It's that way only because of verse 3. Parents have become so consumed with their own survival, with their own caring for their own selves, they do not care about their children. They no longer pay attention to the needs of their children. They turn a deaf ear to their cries. A deaf ear to their cries. Jerusalem was never out of water. The only problem that children had, that parents didn't care about them anymore. Didn't care about them anymore. You'll see also in verse 6, from the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom. And we know what happened in Sodom. 
We know why God destroyed that city. There were no righteous people there. And, and they were so in, in, intent upon pursuing their sin. God gave them opportunities, but yet they went after it anyway. He destroyed them in an instant. But yet Jerusalem is not destroyed in an instant. It is a slow and long death. Why? Because this group of people was the covenant people of God. They knew better. They knew better. And God said it would have been better if you'd have hung out with Sodom. You'd been destroyed in an instant. But yet because you're my covenant children and you had the truth right before you all these years and ignored it, it'll be a long and slow punishment. They were held to a higher standard than the nations around them because they were the children of God. Same thing is true with us, especially when in the church, in leadership, elders and deacons, those who are called to serve, they are held to a higher standard. They're held to a standard that says you have been given the gifts and you have the spiritual maturity to do these things. You better know to stay away from sin. The people of God here did not stay away from sin. They pursued it time and time again. Seven, her consecrated ones were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk, more ruddy in, in, in body than corals. Their polishing was like lapis lazuli. This is a, a stone that really shines when it's polished. These are the rich people, and they're walking around in their fine purples, and this is how they were raised, and, and, and they were the, the, the upper crust. But look at verse 8, what has happened. Their appearance is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It's withered. It's become like wood. They've all been reduced to the lowest level of subsistence. Why? Because they were all, pretty much all, involved in sin. All involved in sin. And what brought this sin on? Well, obviously, as we've said before, their pursuit of other gods. But they were led there, unfortunately. They were led into that. Verse 12. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world, that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. They, they had the warning that they, they were involved in sin time and time again. And what did they do? God won't do that. I know God's prophet says that, so that's what he's going to do, but he won't actually do that to us. We're in tight with the Lord. Okay, He won't do that to us. Because of the sins of the prophets, the iniquities of her priests, the prophets said, you know what? Everybody but Jeremiah said this. Jeremiah said, judgment's coming. Everybody else said, no, no, no. The Lord's going to bless us. The Lord's going to care for us. He's going to take care of us. The priests were so concerned about their own safety, their own security, padding their own nest, that they weren't shedding blood in the temple for sacrifices. They were in there killing people who wanted to disrupt their way of life. This is what Jerusalem had deteriorated to. This is how low they got. So the blame for Jerusalem's ruin really falls first upon the leadership of the nation. The kings, the prophets, and the priests. Then they held out hope that somebody would come and rescue them. Look at verse 17. Yet our eyes failed. Looking for help was useless. In our watching we have watched for a nation that could not save. What they did is they had made a treaty, so to speak, with Egypt. 
Now, Egypt was a power that was south of them. And they said, Egypt, if, if we ever get in trouble, will you come? And they said, yes, we'll come and you will come and help us. Much like in the 30s when Poland made a treaty with Great Britain and said, if we're ever in trouble, Great Britain will come and rescue us. Well, what happened? Germany and Russia got together and said, you know what? We kind of like Poland. Let's divide it up. We won't do... Russia said, we won't do anything. If you invade, you get the half, and then we'll come in two weeks later and take the other half. And that's what they did. And what did Poland do? They looked to Great Britain, and what did Great Britain do? Uh, we, can't, we can't involve ourselves there yet. Okay? People of Jerusalem were looking to Egypt for help, a pagan nation. But they were looking in vain. They didn't turn their eyes to the Lord for help, who could have come. And destroyed the armies of the Babylonians. They looked to Egypt. Now in all this, there's some hope here at the end. Rejoice and be glad, verse 21, O daughter of Edom. He says, you go ahead, dance, Edom. Because Edom was over there going, Jerusalem's getting crushed. Everything is great. You know, we just can't wait to see them get their comeuppance. He says, but the cup will come around to you as well. You will become drunk and make yourself naked. The punishment of your iniquity has been complete, O daughter of Zion. Jerusalem, I've punished you. Your exile will end. But he will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. Edomites and Israelites had a long history. They were once brothers. Do you remember who they came from? Israel came from Jacob. Edom came from Esau. Okay, they were brothers once, but now they were enemies. And the Lord says, you know, Edom, you can rejoice all you want, but because of your sin and your disobedience, I will punish you as well. I will punish you as well. Now, that's all about sin and punishment in 586 B.C., 2,500 years ago. I mean, why should we be so concerned about what happened to a city all those years ago what if the date is 2010 and we are here we're cheating on our taxes we're beating our wives we're using drugs whatever do you think we will not face punishment as well do you think we can look at the civil authorities or look at our heavenly father and say you know what it's not my fault it's not my fault i was raised in a certain environment it's a it's a sickness it's it's whatever do you think That will stand up before the Lord when he has said very clearly, don't go there, Adam. He says that to us. Don't go there, Randy. And if I go there, should I not expect punishment for my sin? Of course I should. See, if you're human, that's all of us, we're totally depraved. That means every part of us is touched by sin. There's nothing good in us that would draw the Lord to us other than his perfect will and his desire to extend his saving grace to us. Every portion of us is corrupted by sin of Adam. Judgment that comes upon us, if we are outside of Christ, is well and truly deserved. There's no escaping it. It is inevitable. But but God, in his great mercy, starting with the covering of skins that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden because of their sin, God provided the skins. What does that mean? Animals had to die. We begin a sacrificial system, a shedding of blood, temporary and imperfect as it was, to cover the sins of humanity. He gave them 
an ongoing system of sacrifice. He gave them the Day of Atonement. When, he, when the high priest would lay his hand upon the scapegoat, signifying that the sins of the people were laid upon this animal, and he would be sent out into the wilderness. But yet it was imperfect. Not until the time that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world, lived a sinless and perfect life, the perfect Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, gave his life for us. His blood atoned for our sins. There's, there's no needed sacrifice. It has been done. It is once and for all. The perfect sacrifice. Upon him was laid our sin. He bore it on the cross. You understand that we deserve an eternity of hell. Every one of our sins deserves that. But God is merciful. In his perfect and sovereign plan from all eternity, he had deemed that Christ would come and pay the penalty for our sin. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So you have to understand that like Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, we have those who warn us when we're disobedient, those who tell us what is right and what the Lord demands. We have the word of God right here in front of us. We have the the prompting, the leading of the Holy Spirit. We have the plain teachings of what happens when we pursue sin. The Lord will judge it because he can't stand in his presence. And we, like the inhabitants of Judah, can heed the warning, or we can ignore it. But to ignore it is to guarantee the punishment of our Lord. As we get closer and closer to Easter, reminded of one of the words, one of the final words that Jesus said on the cross, to tell us die, to tell us die. That's the same word that merchants would write on a bill of sale which means paid in full. He said it is finished. Now what was finished when Christ gave his life for us on the cross? The payment for sin was finished. The work of redemption was complete and finished. All other sacrifices had no application now because Christ had done it all. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. The Savior meant that the satisfaction which he rendered to the justice of God was finished. The debt was now to the last farthing all discharged. The atonement and propitiation were made once and for all and forever by the offering made in Jesus' body on the tree. There was a cup. Hell was in it. The Savior drank it. He drained it till there was not a dreg left for any of his people. There was no lash left with which to smite one for whom Jesus died. The great cannonade of God's justice was exhausted. There was nothing left to be hurled against the child of God. You understand what that says? There was no penalty left to be paid for those who are in Christ. There's no facing the judgment of sin because Christ faced it all. He took the entire wrath of God for the sin of humanity upon himself. That's why Isaiah says there was nothing that would attract us. He was completely disfigured. Was it the beating and the crucifixion that disfigured Christ? Or was it the weight of our sin that disfigured him? Seethe your sword, O justice. Silence your thunder, O law. There remains nothing now of all the griefs and pains and agonies which chosen sinners ought to have suffered for their sins. For Christ has endured all for his own children and said, it is finished. It is finished.
Christ met sin. He bore it upon himself. He nailed it to the cross. And there you had Christ and sin nailed to the cross. Sin and the destroyer of sin. So whether it's 586 or whether it's 2010, we have to understand there's punishment that due sin, but the Lord has provided us a way that we might not face what is really due to us. And that is because Christ has paid the penalty for that. He declared it is finished. The work of Christ, the redemption that is accomplished through him, our atonement for sin, we can be cleansed of that sin because of the work of Christ. See, we need not face all that they faced in 586. All we have to do is hear the word of God. Believe upon Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, sin is our fault. We can't say, we can't blame it on the devil and say, the devil made me do it. That just doesn't fly. We must take responsibility for those things. We must understand that we are separated from you, but yet you in your love for us have sent your Son that he might cleanse us of that sin, that you might draw us unto yourself, that we might stand in your presence, not on our own works, not on anything that, that is, is good in amongst ourselves, but only and singularly on the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we each have things we wrestle with. We each have sins that plague us, that call us by name, try to entice us back. But we don't want to go there because you've said don't go there. Come upon us, Lord, with your strength. Come upon us with this power of the Spirit and dwell within us that, that we would know to turn our eyes away from those things. Not listen to the voices of the world, but only to the voice of you from your word. That we would fix our minds on those things that are right and beautiful and just. The things of Jesus Christ, knowing that he paid the penalty for our sin, that we would never have to face what is really due to us. Because he bore it all on the cross. Lord, as we get closer and closer to Easter, remind us of this. And that his death was not the final act. But yet there is the resurrection of Christ on the third day. When he came out of the grave in the same body that went in. That he would have victory over death and victory over sin. And because of that, those who are in Christ will have the same. Remind us of this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 